All right, as had already been mentioned, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount this week. Just for a quick review, uh, Monday evening we looked at the character of kingdom people in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Took a look at the Beatitudes, or we could say the attitudes that be, or character. Tuesday evening, the influence of kingdom, kingdom people, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 19, and we looked at the salt, the light, and the law. And then last evening, kingdom people and higher righteousness in chapter 5, verses 28 to 48. And Jesus redefines six Old Testament laws and brings them to a higher level of righteousness. Someone once said that the Sermon on the Mount is the Magna Carta of the church. It's our constitution. If we want, I think we receive here, as we look at the, at the entire Sermon on the Mount, we, we receive direction for pretty much all of life. Uh, we can find direction. All right, this evening we're going to uh, start in chapter 6. We're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. And I've entitled the message, Kingdom People and Personal Piety. The definition of piety is uh, two definitions, devotional experiences or practices. A second definition would be religious devotion. And so for a theme, we want to consider the need for private and personal devotional experiences. And the focus is not on formal worship. The focus is on private, personal devotional experiences. And so there's three specific areas we're going to be looking at. Uh, giving of alms, prayer, and fasting. So our first point is giving of alms. Alms is simply means simply giving to the poor or giving to others. And so the question of whether to give or not to give uh, is not a question as we look at this portion of Scripture. Uh, Jesus assumes that all of his followers will give. We notice uh, verse 1, he says, your alms. Verse 2, thine alms. Verse 3, when thou doest alms. Verse 4, again, thine alms. So Jesus assumes that all of his followers give. The question is not who or when, or why, but how do we give? It, zero, it zeroes, well, let's look at verse 1. It says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. He zeroes in on the motivations. The motivations for giving. How we give. Why, why do we give? What's the reason behind it? And he kind of starts out with a warning here. He says, take heed or pay attention to or watch yourself. Be careful. Be careful that you don't uh, swap godly motives for human ambition. And in this matter of giving, giving, it's very easy to be motivated by human ambition. And, and there could be a whole host of motivations that would cause us to give. 
But the motivations for giving need to be godly. They need to be godly motivations. Verse, the latter part of verse 1 says, Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. You know, the desire to win approval of, of other men's praise robs us of the blessing that God wants to give. And so we need to be careful that the motivation isn't to please men or, or to even have some other ulterior motive for giving. It's a very real temptation. Verse 2, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. It was interesting that whenever they dropped coins into the offering bucket or whatever they passed, uh, they blew their horns. That would be quite a noisy, noisy commotion if we would attempt to do that in our worship services. We pass the basket and, and everybody would have a little horn that they'd toot. Uh, it would certainly become a tremendous distraction. Well, that's what the Pharisees did. They liked to toot their horn and let others know that they gave. Uh, just before or maybe just after they dropped their coins, uh, they blew the trumpet. In other words, they were tooting their own bugle. And, and when the motivation is to toot our own bugle, when we're giving, we have lost the blessing of God. In Romans 12, verse 8, it says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. That simply means that when you give, give with no fanfare. There, there's, there's no need to bring attention to yourself. Because if you do, you've lost the blessing. And so we clearly see that Jesus intends this matter of giving alms to be a private act of selfless devotion. And Jesus compares them to hypocrites. Or he calls them hypocrites. Do not sound a trump trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Now this word hypocrite is an interesting word. The original word here uh, means that they were play actors. They were going through their motions. They, 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 they had the motions. They had the activity. They had the actions. But they did it to be seen. They were putting on a show. Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus says, but all their works they do to be seen of men. And so their motivation for giving was to attract attention to themselves. That's why they tooted their bugle. That's why they tooted their horn. You see, a play actor, a play actor or a hypocrite is, is conscious of his audience. And the more conscious he becomes of his audience, the more false he becomes. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of, of uh, being along with a group that went to pass out tracts in Los Angeles. And uh, I brought motivational inspirational messages in the morning, and then there was about 80 young people that went out in the streets during the day. And twice they went into Hollywood. Now, Hollywood was an interesting place. But one of the things I noticed, that it was just, it was just an impressive or, or an oppressive cloud of falseness. There were places where you went to 
learn how to be an actor. They were having sideshows on the street. And, and, and the falseness, the, the play acting was just, it was just, you could feel it. It was just, it was almost refreshing to leave the place and discovered that the tracks weren't readily received in a place like that. And so when we get to the point where, where we, be, we become play actors, it becomes, it kind of becomes disgusting and nauseated. You know, and the world is in, in need of real people. People who are genuine. People who are not, who are not play actors. And certainly God's people ought to be those that are genuine, they're real. They're not doing what they're doing to put on a show. They're doing it because they're motivated for a desire to please God. And so as we think about giving, what motivates your giving? Is your giving regulated or controlled by the people that see you? Is your giving inspired by the opinions of others? If so, if so, your giving is hypocritical. You're being a play actor. And I, I realize that's saying a lot. But our motivations need to be sincere and genuine for giving. The problem with the hypocrites is, is when the audience disappears, so does the motive for giving. And I believe that could be true when it comes to to many things in the Christian experience. A hypocrite is conscious of his performance. And he does, what he does is because of his performance. But brothers and sisters, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. It is not in our performance. And if we get hung up on our performance, there is a very real temptation of a very real reality of becoming a hypocrite. We notice in the latter part of verse 2, Jesus says, they have their reward. If we give with the hope of being blessed in return, we have had our reward. If that's our motivation, maybe, maybe our motivation is not necessary to be seen of others. We're not necessarily concerned that they know how much we gave, but but we give with the motivation that somehow we've developed the mentality, if I give, then I'm going to receive more in return. And sometimes that is a, a mentality that can get a hold of us. We need to be careful about that. And certainly, certainly God is going to bless givers. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to bless us monetarily. As a matter of fact, it may be just the opposite, but he's certainly going to bless our lives. And so if the motive is, another point we might think about, if, if the motive is solely for tax purposes, we have our reward. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, keep track of your giving and, and have the benefit of, of, uh, of that showing up on your IRS report. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I, what I'm saying is if that is the sole reason for your giving, then you have your reward. You have your reward when it comes to filing taxes, and that's it. So we need to give uh, apart from the fact that we're aware that there's a tax benefit in giving. Verse 3, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Here we see something else that's interesting. 
This refers to secret giving. Unpremeditated giving. You see, unpremeditated giving is when we use one hand to give. We reach in our pocket and whatever we pull out, we drop in the basket. We don't use the other hand to count what it is. And so this implies that we give unpremeditatedly. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan on giving because Paul talks about organized giving in the book of 1 Corinthians. But I do believe that our giving does need to be spontaneous. And we don't necessarily give because I have allotted a certain amount, but I give spontaneously. And whatever comes up in our hand, that's what we give. And that's a challenge to all of us, both young and old, probably more of a challenge to those of us who are older, if we're honest. All right, the, uh, we do have a warning in the, uh, the Old Testament law in reference to giving. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. And so I believe even in the Old Testament, we have the teaching that anonymous giving is important. Anonymous giving avoids the pitfalls of respect to person of respect to persons. You see a need within your congregation or in the community, it is not at all important where that money came from. Because if you want them to know where the money came from, you have your reward. It doesn't matter who gets the credit for it. The credit belongs to God. And so we give with, not, with no consciousness or, or concern about who gets the credit for it. Back to Matthew uh, 6, verse 4. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. When someone does their alms before men, there is a danger of lifting that person higher than they're worthy of. And that's one of the, I'm going to be honest, and I'm not being critical. I realize you have a school sale coming up. And I'll say right away that we have them too. Uh, so I'm, I'm not being, I want you to know that I, what I'm about to say is I'm not criticizing you. However, there is a very real pitfall when it comes to fundraising auctions. Our giving is no longer anonymous. And so we have this game that we see sometimes. All the money goes for the school. So what does it matter how high it goes? But there's this game that goes on between bidders and usually the wealthiest win. I mean, doesn't, isn't that the way it works? Others give up first. I, at least that's the way I've found it and what I've noticed. But what's the motivation for that? Again, I, I'm not criticizing. I'm just asking us to take an honest look at some of the things that we do. Uh, and I hope you can love me, even for saying that. But there's probably many other applications we could make as well. Let's, let's be careful of our motivations. We notice in the latter part of the verse that God is the judge of our motive, motives. Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. 
And if our motives are pure and sincere in our, in our giving, God is going to bless us accordingly. So don't restrict yourself in your giving to man's praise, but open yourself up to God's blessing. He wants to reward us openly. Uh, uh, a reward that is obvious, it's an apparent, that it's a blessing from God. Personal piety is giving when our motives are free of all forms of pretense. All right, let's look at another point as we think about uh, kingdom people and personal piety. The second one is prayer, and we see that in verses 5 through 15. Again, the question is not when or why, but how. And again, Jesus assumes that all Christians pray in verse 5, and when thou prayest, verse 6, and when thou pray, but when thou prayest, verse 7, but when ye pray. So Jesus assumes that all kingdom people pray. Pray is just part of our life. It's part of our makeup. It's part of our being. So in verse 5, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues, in the corners of the streets, they may, they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Notice again, they were doing it to be seen of men. They gave alms to be seen of men. They prayed on street corners to be seen of men. We notice it mentions their places, the synagogues, and the street corners. Yeah, it's understandable that you'd pray in a synagogue, but the street corners. And there's nothing wrong with praying on a street corner. I remember being in New York City one time passing out tracts, and we found about, out about uh, a death of some, someone that all of us knew, and we stood in the street corner and prayed. But if we pray on street corners to draw attention to ourselves, we've lost the blessing from God. And that's why I say we need to be careful about prayer walks. Now, I've been on prayer walks already when I've had a burden, walked in the woods and been praying with a burden. I'm not saying that's wrong. But when we go on prayer walks to be seen of men and to show what kind of power we have and how big the group is, we've lost our motivation. We've lost our blessing because we have the wrong motivation. Also talks about their posture. They love to pray standing. Uh, it, it seems that they were lacking in humility. Kneeling in prayer was apparently too inconspicuous. It mentions their pride, their, the places, the posture, their pride. Their pride was to be seen of men. Their prayers were not focused on God. They were conscious of being observed by others. And then it mentions their product. The product was, is that they have their reward. A temporary passing satisfaction. A feel-good type of thing. No substance, but really makes you feel good. We need to be careful about those fuzzy feelings, about feeling good, about spiritual things, if there's no content there. Matthew 23, verse 14. For a pretense or a show make long prayer, therefore they shall not they shall receive the greater damnation. And so even though they had this warm, fuzzy feeling about being seen of men and having the praise of men and the momentary feeling of doing good, the end result of their motivations was not good because it wasn't pleasing to God. 
It wasn't to God, it was for man. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter in thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Enter into thy closet. Every Christian, every, every child of God needs a private place of prayer. A place that we're alone with God. And there's, there's, tremendous, there's tremendous power, there's tremendous blessing in being alone with God. Because as we're alone with God, He reveals to us the secret of life. The Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. What a blessing to have that kind of prayer life with God. To recognize that God, one, is an audience with God. As we, is a majority with God as we, as we pray with Him. The purpose is to be conscious of God's audience, God's presence, not man's. The temptation can be very real to be insincere in public because we become conscious of what the audience thinks. But in private, we pray sincerely. We're not tempted to use all kinds of eloquent words to show off how well we can pray, but we just speak to God like we would to a good friend. Open, sincere, honest, and transparent. We need those kinds of prayer experiences. We need private places to pray of prayer. There were great men of the Bible that had private places to pray. Isaac went to a field in Genesis 24:63. Elijah went to a loft in 1 Kings 17. Daniel went to a bedroom in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And he did that three times a day. Jesus went to a mountain, Matthew 24, 23. Peter went to a housetop, Acts 10, 1. John went to an island, Revelation 1. We need a private place of prayer to meet with our God, to meet with our friend, talk with him heart to heart about the burdens of our life and our burdens for others our burden for direction. Verse 7, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. You know, one of the things the Pharisees did? They read their prayers. Reading prayers is, has a very real danger of becoming routine and formal. Uh, some time ago, I uh, sit in on our school board as, as an ex-official member. Uh, the chairman says to me, uh, Brother Ivan, the next time, could you lead us in prayer? And I said, yeah, but I, I'm not anticipating to practice for it. Is it okay if I wait to, to pray spontaneously when I come? And he said, well, that wasn't my reason for answer, asking. I just want to make sure you're aware of it. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful that our pray prayers don't become some kind of monotonous, wordy routine a lot of words, but they've lost their meaning. They've lost their meaning. He talks about vain, being empty of content. In James chapter 5, verse 17, it says that Elijah prayed earnestly. So unlike, unlike the Pharisees, Elijah actually prayed a prayer. He didn't say a prayer. He prayed a prayer. And I believe there's a difference. 
When we pray a prayer, it's something that comes from our heart. It, it's not premeditated, it's spontaneous. And when praying, it is better to have a it is better to have heart without words than words without heart. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26 is a beautiful verse. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I'm not sure that I fully understand the depth of this verse, but one of the things I get from this verse is that there are going to be times in our prayer experience that we cannot put it into intelligent words. Nevertheless, there is a burden there. And the Holy Spirit interprets that burden to our Heavenly Father. And I'm sure all of us at some point or another in our lives have had those kinds of burden. We just didn't know how to pray. And so we don't come before the Lord with eloquence. He's not looking for eloquence in our prayers. Now, we might say, does all of this do away with audible prayer? No, it doesn't do with aud away with audible prayer. There is still place for, for audible prayer. There's still place for corporate prayer. Uh, Jesus did in John 11, verses 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that ye may believe, and that thou hast sent me. So there's, there's a place for, for uh, public prayer, but even public prayers are prayers that need to be spontaneous. And, it's, it, and leadership needs to guard against that because they do pray audibly many times, and so they need to guard against that their, their prayers do not become routine. I know of a particular person that always starts out his prayer, his first four or five sentences are always the same. And I'm not going to judge him, but we don't, they need to be spontaneous, is my point. Does it condemn long prayers? No, it doesn't condemn long prayers because Jesus prayed all night in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. However, I will say this, that our prayers in public are a condensation of our burden in the closet. The prayers, our public prayers, are a condensation of the long burden that we've had in our closet. Does it condemn repetitious prayer? No, it doesn't. Matthew 24, 60, uh, 44, Jesus prayed the third time, saying the same words. What is it then? What is the problem then? You see, Jesus is not condemning the act itself, the act of prayer. He's zeroing in on the motivation for prayer. What motivates us to pray? We notice in the latter part of verse 7, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, directing to their motivation. Verse 8, be not therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. You see, 
when they prayed, they gave God a long, detailed list of information. And brothers and sisters, I would hope that we recognize that when we come to God, there is no need for him to give him a whole lot of information. He already knows about it. And so we express our burden. We don't need to tell him when and where it happened. Uh, We may mention the person's name or the situation, but he already knows the details. And so our prayers are not to be informative to God because God is omniscient, but rather our prayers are intercessory, they're petitionary, and they are thankful. And then we have in verses 9 to 13, Jesus then gives the model prayer, or what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Verse 9, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. After this manner. And so this alerts us that this is merely given as a pattern or a model. And I think it's fine at a corporate worship service to pray this prayer together sometimes. But we don't pray this all the time in our prayers. We just simply use this sermon as a guideline to our prayers. It should not, our prayers should not become an exact replica of this, of this prayer, lest we become guilty of the very same things that, that Jesus was trying to speak to the Pharisees about. The nature of this prayer, as we observe it, is almost entirely spiritual. There is only one uh, request here for material blessing. And how often do we find ourselves coming before the Lord concerned about our needs, our family, our church, or our country. I'm not saying that those are legitimate concerns, but brothers and sisters, let's make sure, let's make sure that they're not selfishly motivated because we realize that when our needs are met, the needs of our family are met, our needs of our church are met, the needs of our nation are met, we know we become indirect beneficiaries of those blessings. So let's make sure, let's make sure, don't stop praying for them, but let's make sure they're not selfishly motivated. Let's notice the prayer a little closer. The salutation is to our Father, not to the saints, not to the priests, not to angels, not to the Holy Spirit, but to our Father, our Heavenly Father. And so the spirit of this uh, uh, salutation includes honor, reverence, awe. We don't come before God in a demanding way. We come before Him with a sense of awe because He is holy. We notice also that He is in heaven, our Father which is in heaven. He inhabits eternity. He is majestic. He's omnipotent. He is sovereign. We come to him with that awareness. We come to him with the awareness that he is not a puppet on a string. We come with the awareness that we aren't going to yank him on our chain and he's going to dance for us and he's going to perform for us. We don't come that way at all. We come with a sense of reverence and trust. Uh, we live close to an interstate, and uh, in our early years of living there, I used to see these uh, transportation trucks going by, these tractor trailers that said G-O-D. And I thought, well, that's kind of blasphemous until I discovered what it meant. 
It means guaranteed overnight delivery, a good slogan for a trucking company. However, there are too many Christians that approach God exactly the same way. They expect guaranteed overnight delivery. We do not get demanding of God. God is sovereign. He has purposes for what he does. And that purpose, that sovereign purpose may for us, when he delays the answers to prayer, is to bring us to the place where we become more trusting and more confident that he is God of heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That means he's holy. Our prayer uh, needs to zero in on his holiness. We must be concerned about his honor, his glory, his holiness. Verse 10, thy kingdom come. We come to him with a concern for his kingdom. We come to him with the awareness that someday there's going to be a perfect social order. We come to him with the awareness that there is someday going to be a, the universal reign of his son. We're not there yet. And so we pray. We pray for his kingdom. That's a concern for us. Verse 10. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a concern for his will. Not our will, but there's a concern for his will. You know, James chapter 4, verse 3, it says, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss so that you may consume it upon your lusts. Selfishly motivated prayers. Our will, not God's. But we need to be just the opposite. We need to be praying for his will to be done. And so that's going to require some resignation on my part. It's going to require the laying down of my will and submitting to his perfect will. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And so there's a legitimate concern for physical need. Our daily bread, not not excess, not luxury, but our daily needs. Our God is not so big that he doesn't care about your baby's bottle of milk. He's not so big that he doesn't care about Junior's jelly bread. He's not so big that he doesn't care about mom and dad's grocery bill. He wants us to be dependent upon and he will provide us our daily bread. But the problem is, we North Americans no longer pray for our daily bread. Do we? Do we? You see, if we're not careful, we forget that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. And so maybe you don't need to pray for your daily bread, but by all means, we need to recognize that it comes from God. And without that daily bread... Where would we be? And so there needs to be an awareness of physical need, a thankfulness of physical need. It is folly to think that we can even live one day without him. We need to remember that God cares for his children. David said, I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. And oh, we get so fretful sometimes when we can't make ends meet. I've been there. I know what it's like. But our Heavenly Father cares, and He will provide for us. 
Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here there's a concern about the resolution of personal injustices. What about our relationship with others as we come to the Lord? Are we concerned about being given, forgiven by Him, but not concerned about seeking forgiveness from others? Let's be careful. Notice what it says in the latter part of that verse. As we forgive our debtors, we approach our Heavenly Father with an awareness of how we have forgiven those who have offended us. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. There's a a legitimate concern for the protection from evil. There's a legitimate concern for, for guidance. And so we ask God to guide our daily path. That is right. That is good. And young people, can you pray this prayer before you enter a place of pleasure or a place of entertainment? Think about it. Can you do that? Deliver us from temptation. Aren't we tempting God when we go into places of temptation and turn around and ask him to deliver us from temptation? I believe there's some personal responsibility involved here as well. Deliver means to, to God wants to rush to the rescue. And, and if we're serious about being delivered from temptation, God will be there. He will deliver us. A verse that was always precious to me in my youth, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 there is no temptation taking you such as common demand, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will the temptation also make a way of, of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That simply means that every temptation we face goes through the filtering process of God, and He will not permit us to face a temptation that we're not able to bear. But as a young man, I had to first discover that I needed to make deliberate choices to avoid those places with excessive amounts of temptation. And only when I made that choice began I begin to understand and could I honestly claim what this verse means. Deliver us from temptation. Latter part of verse 13. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to our God In our prayer closets, we're concerned for his glory. This is prayer at its apex. It has a spiritual spiritual vision that affixates on God. We conclude, we begin our prayers with a sense of awe and reverence. We end our prayers with an absolute awe of God. And it's in between that we package our requests. Verses 14 and 15. And if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Here Jesus enlarges a little bit on what he has said in verse 12. A little bit of clarification here in verse 12. You know, unforgiveness is a quite great hindrance to experiencing answered prayer. 
That's right. You heard me right. Unforgiveness is quite a hindrance in experiencing answered prayer. How is our relationship with our fellow man? Forgive us our trespasses, the side slips, the unintentional mistakes. God knows that. But when they're deliberate, conscious sins, we need to make, go to our fellow man and clear them up before God hears our prayer. If we can't forgive others of little mistakes, don't expect God to overlook your big mistakes. Or for that matter, don't even expect God to hear your prayers. Are our prayers sincere? Are they genuine? Are they real? All right, let's look at the third point, the matter of fasting in verses 16 to 18. And again, I notice something interesting, just like we did in the other two expressions of worship, that Jesus assumes that all Christians fast. In verse 16, he says, Moreover, when ye fast. Verse 17, But thou, when thou fastest. He just assumes that kingdom people fast. Why is it that fastings have become a special occasion event? Shouldn't it be just as normal to fast as it is to give and to pray? I think this context implies that. The fasting here appears to be a completely voluntary personal act of piety. It's not necessarily something that is planned or announced. It's something that comes spontaneously. Fasting is a form of self-denial. It's a form of spiritual discipline. The purpose is so that we become more acutely aware of God's concerns and less aware of our own needs. Aware of God, an awareness of God. You know, I think all of us have experienced this to some extent or another. When the flesh is satisfied, it is difficult to pray. Example, Sunday dinner, meatloaf, mashed potato, gravy, uh, peas, salad, chocolate cake, fruit, ice cream. And when we're done, we sit down and pray. You know, it's pretty difficult to pray when our flesh is satisfied. Fasting is a form of discipline, a spiritual form of discipline. The fleshly, satisfac fleshly satisfaction tends to stifle the Spirit of God. Verse 16 Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. I don't know what they were doing here. Apparently they had makeup. I, I'm just, you know, maybe I'm reading too much in here, but they did something to their faces to make themselves look like they were sad sacks, like, like they, they connected with God. And, and, and his oppressive nature. I don't know. It just, they wanted men to see. 
You see, they were really more concerned about doing than being. They were all caught up in this thing of doing. All caught up in this thing of being able to be seen by others. And they weren't concerned about being. Being in tune with God. And so they pretended to be religious sad sacks. What was their motive? To draw attention to themselves. What was the result? They became self-centered instead of God-centered. Latter part of verse 16, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When we tell others, I have fasted, we've lost our blessing. And I recognize people need encouragement to fast. But I believe if the church sets official days to fast, I fear it is a violation of the very spirit of what Jesus is trying to teach us. Fasting appears to be a more personal matter, spontaneous, private, personal matter. In the Old Testament, fastings were public proclamations. But here in verse 17 it says, But thou, when thou prayest, It's addressed personally. It's not addressed corporately. It's personal. It's personal. Fasting is too personal. It's too sacred to advertise to others. He says here, anoint thine head. The, Hebrew, the Amplified Bible uh, uses the phrase, perfume your head. Wash thy face. Have a fresh appearance about yourself. Don't do anything like the Pharisees to draw attention to the fact that you were fasting. No one needs to know. It's a private matter between you and God. But don't use that as an excuse not to fast. You see, I think that's where many of us fall short. It's a private matter. Why, does, why would anyone else care? Well, that's, that's true. But God knows. God knows. What is our personal piety like? If we look sorrowful just to get pity from man, we've lost focus of our Father, which is in heaven. Jesus didn't condemn their fasting. He condemned their motives for fasting. In verse 18, That thou appear not unto men, men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Here we have it again, just like we saw over in verse 6. Thy Father which is in secret, thy Father which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. It is God's doings to provide us with a blessing. It is not ours to create. Do, do you want to be the architect of your own blessing? I don't, because I'm afraid if I become the architect of my own blessing, I'm going to end up with a whole lot less than God wants to give me. Fasting is God's way of teaching the flesh that it has no rights of its own. Fasting is a spontaneous response to the burden of the heart and therefore doesn't need to be advertised. A quotation I came across by John R. Mumaw that I liked, it is a form of self-denial that ascertains the will of God concerning the highest interests of the kingdom. Are we concerned about the kingdom of God? In conclusion, just a few concluding thoughts. 
The upshots of these teachings are on giving of alms, of praying, of fasting, is that we need to refrain from advertising our spirituality, lest we become hypocrites. You see, we are not concerned about doing, but being. To bring attention to our giving, to our praying, to our fastings, is to violate the very spirit of the Sermon of the Mount. Because Jesus started this sermon out, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. And that includes our worship. And so I trust that the Spirit of the Lord has been ministering to us this evening. And we're ready to have an open, transparent worship experience before the Lord in giving, in praying, and in fasting. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.